Liverpool 3 0. Call it, take it quickly, Origi! Yeah! Hello and welcome to the Anfield Central podcast. Just over a week to go until Liverpool are back in Premier League action and I'm joined by James and Max to talk about all the news we've seen over the last seven days or so. Guys, how are we doing? Yeah, not too bad. Just getting a bit bored of this transfer window already and there's still till the end of the month to go. I'm, I'm the same as James. I just want football. That's all I want. I, don't, I just don't want any more bollocks on social media about transfers. I just want it to end... <laughs> Yeah, I think we're all in the same boat on that one, but we'll kick off with some good news. Um, It's not transfer news, but it is good news all the same that Fabinho and Trent Alexander-Arnold this week have both signed new long-term contracts. I believe Trent's deal will now run until 2025 and Fabinho's will be to 2026. So you've tied down two key members of the squad. Um, I mean, it's a bit of a cliche that, you know, signing, getting your, your existing players to sign new contracts is as good as signing a new player. But just how important, James, is it to get the likes of Trent and Fab tied down I've, for long-term deals? Those two players especially, I think it's really important. I think you look at Trent, he's, you know, a once-in-a-generational player. He's completely changed that right-back position. Nobody plays it like him. And I don't think we'll see anyone play it like him again. And, you know, he's, he's worn the armband a couple of times for Liverpool now. So I think that's sort of where we're heading with him as a whole. And I think that's where Klopp's got his eyes on him. And Fabinho, I mean, where we would have been without him last season, playing in midfield and playing at centre-half. I mean, he deserves it just on last season alone. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's in the he's probably the best defensive midfielder in the league alongside Kante. Um, and he's certainly in the top five in his position in Europe. So... I think it shows a lot considering what happened last season and how much of a downfall it was from, you know, the Champions League win and then the Premier League win for two major players to commit the futures to the club for probably what will be a new era at the club. It, it won't be the Klopp era anymore by then. Yeah, um, that's actually a very good point, is that by the time those guys are coming to the end of their contracts, we probably won't have Jurgen Klopp as manager anymore um, if his plan to go on sabbatical comes through. Um, and yeah, I can only echo what James has said. Getting Fabinho and Trent, who are probably two of the um, two players who are in the top five in their positions in football, um, to commit to long-term deals is fantastic. I mean, Jurgen Klopp always talked about how he could never keep his team together at Borussia Dortmund, and he'd always lose key players, like you know, losing. Uh, he lost Kagawa to. Man United lost Lewandowski, obviously. Nuri Sahin, even at the beginning when Real Madrid signed him, like he'd always get a player cherry picked. Um, and now that he's in a position where he can actually keep these players around, I'm not surprised that he wants to. Um, and there's a few other contracts that need to happen Van Dyke and Salah and Mane. But the reality is, as well, is that it's not going to be everyone who gets a new contract. We are going to see a new system coming through and it has to be built around Fabinho and Trent who um, who obviously are going to stay through for it. And on that obviously there's a lot of new contracts that I think have been reported that they're currently working on like you say there Max van Dijk, Salah and, and, and Alisson I think as well have been have been mentioned obviously there's the big question mark on Jordan Henderson what we'll have to wait and see. Um, FSG's policy when it comes to contracts has you know as we saw with, with Wijnaldum when he was entering his 30s the younger guys have been kind of prioritized and the older the older members of the squad 
haven't not been offered contracts, but maybe they've not been offered as um, lengthy contracts as they'd like. For example, with Van Alden, and I think Milner's has kind of been year on year. With the likes of Salah and Mane particularly, maybe not Firmino so much, but with Salah and Mane, who are in their late 20s going into the early 30s, do you think we could see a bit of a deviation with, with those guys? Maybe Van Dijk as well, because they're exceptional circumstances rather than the likes of Wijnaldum and Henderson and possibly Firmino, who FSG may see as more replaceable than your kind of pedigree players like Van Dijk and Salah? Yeah, I definitely think they'll prioritise those two. Um I think, you know, as they say, the hardest job in football is to put the ball in the back of the net. And at the moment, up until last season, Liverpool had the two best wingers at, at scoring goals and creating goals. Um, obviously, we all hope they, they hit the form that they did you know, in the previous seasons, next season. Um, so, yeah, I think that's why they'll, they'll prioritise them. And especially with you know, the way football's going, um, if you can tie down an attacker and get him to sign a, long, you know, a couple of years on a deal, it always adds a bit of value onto his transfer deal if the club did come to sell any of them. But yeah, I think you've got to start prioritising you know, the, the spine of your team now. So obviously Fabinho's been done if they can get, like you said, Alisson done as well. Um, I think you're certainly going to have to tie down Mane and Salah because I think some of the big clubs will come knocking for them. I do have an issue with um, the thinking of, you know, don't give anyone over the age of 30 um, a big contract because... It depends on the player entirely. Some players will struggle going into their 30s, like um, Gareth Bale's one example. He just doesn't have the pace that he used to, not even close. Um, but if you think about Van Dyke, like Van Dyke, he will be he will still be a top player by the time he's 33, 34. He will be still a great player. I mean, look, Giorgio Chiellini's what, 36, and he's just yeah. signed a new deal with Juventus. Um, and then Mo Salah, I can very much see in a sort of Ronaldo kind of style as he gets older, moving off the wing and starting to play more as a nine um, and using that really good movement that he's got in the box and his understanding of space works really well. And even if he's not got the pace that he used to in a few years, he still carries the ball so well um, and his technique is really good. So that those two I can absolutely see the logic of giving them a long-term deal at this point. I'm going to be very interested. I don't think Bobby will get a new contract. And I, I've i got a feeling Sadio Mane might not as well. I have a suspicion that he might be allowed to um, leave possibly next year. I, that's not a, you know, I have no information saying that, but I, I could just see it happening. It would definitely be interesting to see what happens with some of those um, guys with more of a question mark on them. You'd obviously expect like Van Dyke and Salah to be tied up straight away with the value they have to the club. Um, some good news before we move on to some more transfer stuff then. This week, we saw Virgil van Dijk and Joe Gomez return to action after, you know, the best part of nine months out against Hertha Berlin in, in that friendly match. Even though it was just, you know, a small amount of time on the pitch during a meaningless friendly, just how great was it to see them? They both came on together, obviously, on the side. How great was it to see them back in a Liverpool shirt? playing football? I mean, just them hugging each other before they came on was enough to pull yeah. on your heartstrings. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was, um, I think, I think Van Dijk said it himself or, or it might have been Gomez. You know, it's always hard going through a long-term injury by yourself, but when you've got someone going through it with you, it does make all the difference. Um, but yeah, it, it's massive. And I think it will give the, you know, the team a lot of confidence knowing that 
you know, the two defenders that helped win the Premier League and the Champions League are, are going to be coming back and the best defender in the world is coming back. Um, and it just makes you feel a little bit better about that defence. You know, there is going to be some serious competition with Canate coming in. Um, Matip um, obviously coming back from injury and then you've still got Nat Phillips hanging around the club um, so yeah it does breathe a lot of confidence knowing that these 1-0 wins we were we were having last season or these 1-1 draws you know just seeing those two run onto the pitch and like you say just play what was it 20 odd minutes they played against Erta Berlin um, just seeing them run onto the pitch just makes you feel like those draws and those uh, slim defeats could, could be turned around next season yeah I think um Having the likes of Van Dijk and Gomez back is just—I mean, if, if any anything in the world misses those two players, um, I mean, having Virgil Van Dijk back just purely from a psychological point of view, I'm sure for the rest of the defense and the rest of the team will be massive. And also, um, I think I talked about this on the last episode of the podcast: is that all of a sudden, where we had a serious lack of height at set pieces, we've now got what four centre back? Uh, sorry, three centre backs who are over six foot four and have mad um, yeah. aerial duel statistics. And then Joe, Joe Gomez, uh, I would say he's not the best aerial centre back, but he's certainly improving on that front. And also, three out of four of them have got really, really, really good recovery pace. Um, and Joel Matip's just Joel Matip, and I love him. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think the return of those guys cannot be overemphasized enough. And if Van Dyke stays fit, we can challenge for the title. He, he is honestly that good that his presence alone is a make or not a make or break, but like very much, you know, a huge factor to um having a title challenge as opposed to going for the top four. Yeah, completely agree on that. So we'll hopefully see lots of football for the pair of them this season. So we'll keep our fingers crossed on that. Moving on to everyone's favourite topic, transfers. Obviously, we have to talk about it because not really anything else to talk about. There's not been any significant movement or information over the, you know since the last podcast and any incomings for, from for Liverpool. But we have seen a lot of other clubs doing big business in general in this window. Obviously. At time of recording today, it looks very likely that Jack Grealish is going to go to Manchester City. Obviously, I know James is a massive fan of him, as we all are. Man United have already tied up Jadon Sancho and Rafa Varane. And then you've got Chelsea putting in £85 million bids for Romeo Lukaku from Inter Milan. Um, Should we be worried about, maybe not the lack of business that Liverpool are doing, but the type of business our rivals are doing more than anything? Yeah, I... From a Liverpool uh, point of view, I think there's there's no point in worrying up until transfer deadline day. Um, I'm just putting all the faith in the club where, you know, we've seen transfers come out of nowhere, Jota, Fabinho, you know, they were all hush-hush until, the vet, until they signed on the dotted line. Um, but I think we have got to be concerned now. I, I'm, the Sancho and Varane one, I'm, yes, they're very good players, but I'm not too much concerned because I don't really rate Solskjaer as a manager to get the best out of them. But the Grealish one hurts. Uh, <laughs> it's I think I think I've spoken about him on the on you know this show before. He really is a once in a generational player. And I think if you put him alongside a De Bruyne, because he can either play on the left, he can play as the number 10, or he can play on the right. He you know he can play anywhere along the three. Um I think just them two linking up together is it, it's good enough to dominate the league and the, and the and the Premier League for the next five six years, depending on how old Kevin De Bruyne gets and how he gets with his injuries. I know he's picking up a few more recently, 
Um, but yeah, the, the City one is. And who are the Chelsea one? I don't think we should be too worried with them because they're just spending the money that they didn't spend in the transfer ban that they had for two transfer, three, four transfer windows. So not too worried about them. But uh, yeah, the Manchester City one's the worst one. See, I tend to disagree there. I, I think Lukaku is the one to worry about. He is in the top three strikers in football. He's ridiculously talented. He's a physical monster. Um, he's finishing... Um, his right foot is much improved and he already had a lethal left foot. He gives that real physical presence for Chelsea that they lacked um, last season when Olivier Giroud um, wasn't playing. Um, yeah, I think if he goes into Chelsea, they go from top four to title challenges. I really do think his impact will be that big. Uh, Jack Grealish, um, a- as you guys know, I love him. I think he's a great player. He was in my team of the season last year. Um, but do I think he is that big an improvement on Bernardo Silva, um, who will probably end up leaving if Grealish comes in? I honestly don't think so. He, he is not... He, his signing, despite the 100 million quid, I don't think is what is going to take City to the next level. He's an unbelievable player, but I think Bernardo Silva is an unbelievable player as well. So I think to me, it will be a mild improvement. But yeah, I, th- I think playing him and De Bruyne as 2-8, which I've heard they want to do ahead of Rodri, I do not want to be Rodri if City get counter-attacked. That is not going to be fun. I see James is, is shaking his head there. So let's just go straight straight back to James to, to respond to that. We have a debate. Grealish I love it. <laughs> has, has, <laughs> has Grealish got the discipline to play in a Guardiola side? We know he's a bit of a, you know, a free spirit. At Villa, he's kind of given a bit of a free role to kind of just almost do what he likes in that midfield. With Guardiola, it's going to be a lot more disciplined do you what do you think of what Max has to say on on, on that? I, I think he's got the discipline. I think what we've seen, you know, the, the the growing up he's done, Jack Grealish, especially when the he went down with them in the championship with Villa and brought them back up as captain, and especially how he was in the England squads, um, showed great discipline when he came on, and then he got subbed off in the in the semi final, um, in extra time. So yeah, I definitely think he's got it. The Bernardo Silva one. I don't think Bernardo Silva has been great since they won the title the year before we did. I think he's been pretty much a squad player there. He's not really had the impact. He's not had the goals and assists. He's not had the standout performances. That he, that breakout season he had, I thought he was probably one of the best players in the league. But ever since he, he didn't clap um, when we did the, uh, the Guard of Honour, since that season, I don't think he's been the same player. Um, but I, I just think Jack Grealish will completely change um, how City go forward. His footwork is, you know, I think he's the, probably the best dribbler in the in the Premier League. He's definitely the most fouled player in the Premier League alongside Zaha. Um, but yeah, I do see the point that Max says where if you're Rodri, um, you're going to be absolutely knackered <laughs> when there's a counter-attack because it's just going to be you on the, uh, on the halfway line on your own. But I don't think Grealish takes, improves City marginally. I think he improves them by a hell of a lot. Um, we, I should just say, um, uh, news breaking right now. Um, Alison Becker has committed to Liverpool until 2027. That's, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. official. I, I guess on that, 
it's the same as what we were saying about Trent and Fabinho then James the importance of getting that spine in in place is massive yeah yeah it's really impressive you know what I mean and like I said before Klopp's probably not going to be here by that point so for them to say I'm happy enough to stay at the club but get a new manager in and and you know help get the manager up and running and, and be one of those players who starts that next that next you know part of, of Liverpool's history I think says a lot so I think that's We've got four signings now we've made this summer. So that's Canate, <laughs> Trent, Fabinho and Allison. So it's not been a bad transfer window. Yeah, it's not bad. Um, no, I mean, like, Allison is a freakishly good keeper. Um, Liverpool in my lifetime, I've never had a keeper close to his standard, apart from maybe the first year or two of Pepe Reina. But even then, he wasn't that good. Um, Sander Vesterveld. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> and Peggy of Hexhead as well. Chris Kirkland. <laughs> Chris Kirkland, Scott Carson, what a litany of talent. Um, no, it is fantastic getting Allison signed. And the one thing I will say, I'm going to be positive here. This is a new thing for me. Um, is I don't think Allison and Fabinho, Trent were because of the local app, but I don't think Allison and Fabinho sign if they don't think that there is a plan for moving forward with this squad because they're not, they're not local lads. They're not, you know, they have no love for this club outside of the experience that they've had already. But if they thought, this squad's getting older, it doesn't look like the recruitment's going to happen. It's probably best while my stock is high to, um, you know, not sign a contract and maybe engineer a move. The fact that they are signing these long-term contracts is a pretty good indicator for, the plan that Liverpool have going forward, I would say. Absolutely. And, and given what we've seen this week, I guess we'll see Virgil signing on dotted line tomorrow then. Um, Here's hoping. <laughs> Let's keep the right up one a day. <laughs> Moving on to what we kind of discussed a little bit last week was that in terms of incomings, it's going to be difficult for anything to be done until we see some outgoings. Shakiri and Origi are the ones that we've previously mentioned who are obviously the most likely to move on. Focusing a little bit on Origi, because we've seen Shakiri linked with a few clubs like Lazio and um, one or two others. With Divock Origi, it might be a little bit more difficult. I think the club are hoping to get around 15 to 20 million pounds for him. Do we think this could be Michael Edwards' hardest job yet? <laughs> it's looking like it. I mean, we've, we, we've always given Michael Edwards the transfer guru name. He's managed to get ridiculous amounts of money for ridiculous players. You know, like Dominic Solanke and Jordan Ibe, and, and you know, we let. I think the best one he did was we let Brad Smith go for free. For, just released him. He didn't go to a club. We gave him a new deal, and then we sold him for six million the following yeah. year. So, um, but yeah, it's a hundred percent his hardest thing he's got to do this summer. Um, and I think it just goes to the world we're living in at the moment with you know the COVID environment that we're in. Where these teams that probably had the 20 million and they were willing to take a risk on Divock Origi, maybe getting 10, 15 goals in a, in a starting team. I'm probably thinking that that 20 million could be used somewhere else. They're not willing to take the risk on someone who, I mean, apart from that Champions League winning season, just hasn't really cut it at Liverpool, which is a shame. He looked like he was going to be a really good striker for us before Funes Mori, um, that horrible tackle in the derby. Um, but yeah, I think that's why it's going to be the hardest. I, I just don't think these teams that who are mid-table in the Premier League or mid-table Bundesliga uh, and maybe Serie A can see possibly going to 
I just don't think they've got the money to take the risk on someone who, you know, has still got years left on his Liverpool contract. I think he's got about two years left. Um, and the wages he'll probably demand coming in as a Premier League and European winner. Um, yeah, I think this is definitely going to be his hardest, his hardest bit of uh, business to do. Unfortunately, I think Liverpool are just going to have to accept the reality that 20 million quid for Divock Origi just is not realistic. Like, in a world where, you know, Aston Villa have signed Leon Bailey for 29 million, who is younger, more productive, more talented, has got a higher ceiling. Like, why, like, why is he only worth 9 million less, according to us? on that front like that that would be my question if I was a um a prospective buyer and I don't think Michael Edwards would be able to answer it outside of he's got experience winning trophies from the bench mostly mm-hmm. um he will and also the fact that clubs in Europe right now are in such bad financial situations compared to the rest of the Premier League like their players as well are available for really cheap. Like Daniel Marlon went for what 25 million quid to Borussia Dortmund. In what world, in comparison to these players being available for that market, is anyone going to pay 20 million pounds for Divock Origi? That just is not going to happen. But then again, I said I would have said that about Dominic Slanky and hey, look, you can always rely on Bournemouth to do something stupid in the transfer market. So um Here's hoping that Scott Parker does that. Um, but no, in all seriousness, I, I can see Shakiri going. If someone bids 12, 15 million pounds, make our money back on him, free up somewhere. I don't think that's going to be complicated. I think Divock Origi... And the issue is as well is that Divock Origi clearly has no issues with his role. Like he, does, he doesn't feel like he needs to start. He's very happy to just sit on the bench and collect his paycheck and be a meme. Um, so yeah, I think he's not going to try and force his way out or anything like that. I would almost be half tempted just to say, you know what, tear up the contract, off you go. But I know he's done a lot of great things for us and he scored goals. But the reality is that I don't think he's even a top 10 Premier League standard striker, really. I, I think he's relegation candidate striker, if not championship. Do you think that? Part of because obviously he signed a new contract basically either the day after or the week after we won the Champions League, didn't he? There's that that famous picture of him with the Champions League trophy next and while, while he's signing his new deal. Do you think that plays into Klopp's sentimentality a little bit? Obviously, in that season, Divock delivered in you know two or three really big moments, and you consider the goal he scored against Everton, the derby, um, obviously the two goals against Barcelona, and then coming on to seal it against Spurs in, in, in the final. Is this probably the ultimate example of Klopp being too sentimental with players? I don't think it's so much Klopp. I think it's more the board thinking, right, we need to capitalise on this now. This guy's stock is never going to go as high as this now. From what, from the from the way he played, the two goals against Barcelona and a goal in the final, um, like you said, he scored the uh, the winner in the derby. He scored a last-minute winner against Newcastle, um, just the week, the week leading up to that Barcelona second leg. Mm-hmm. Um so, so we, he did play some a big part in the big games, and um, so that's what I think. Maybe it's it's you know Michael Edwards or somebody else who's dealing with the contracts has sort of said right now his ceiling, his stock. Sorry, he's never going to go as high as what it is now. So let's tie him down to a deal. Um, Mane was at uh, the African Cup of Nations, um, I think it was. Uh, so we missed the beginning of the season. So I think they thought if Origi starts on fire at the beginning of the season, then maybe 
by the end of the August window, we can try and get rid. But like you said, in in the reality of it, he's just not looked the same player since then, then the final uh, semi final and the final. And um, yeah, like like Max said, he he just looks happy to play in the League Cup, come on with ten minutes to go if Liverpool are winning, jog around, get his paycheck, and then just go home because. I don't know if he's got the mentality of he won't be able to take away what he's already done for the club. He's done it. He's got his medals. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a frustrating one. And I imagine everyone inside the club now, Michael Edwards, who is trying to ring round and try and get rid of a regate, it must be really frustrating. I think the issue is Michael Edwards bringing it around and saying, hello, can we have £20 million per difficult regate, please? <laughs> I'd be like, no. I, like, I'd barely give you 20 quid. Um no, but he, like in all seriousness, I mean, I've heard reports of a £10 million bid from uh, Wolves. I don't know how true that is, but if someone bid £10 million quid for Divock Origi, I'd bite your hand off. Like, it makes our money back from when we bought him. I think we paid £8 million for him or something like that. Um, and gets a player with not huge, but substantial wages off our wage bill. Um, and leaves spot for a home uh, non-homegrown player to be brought in. For me, it's a, a no-brainer. And the other issue that I have is the fact that we've got um, t- targets are going. Like, Daniel Marlin's gone now. Dusan Vlajevic is looking less and less likely every minute, and he's now being linked with um, Inter Milan as well as Spurs. Um, Patson Dak is gone. He's gone to Leicester. You know, the, the list of targets for forwards for Liverpool is growing thin and that will probably become the same case with midfielders. And if we're going to make signings, I understand waiting until late in the window to try and get yourself a bargain. But the issue is, if all your targets go, you're not getting anyone. In terms of incoming then, obviously, as we said earlier, that we've not been linked with anyone really concrete. Um do we think it's going to be a surprise signing that none of us sees come in, similar to what we saw with Fabinho and maybe Jota as well a few last year and a few years ago? Um, we also been linked with Saul from Atletico Madrid, probably the only name that springs to mind instantly. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort I'm sort of expecting something to just to come out and be completely shocked at. Um, I don't see the logic in the Saul. I just think he's going to cost too much just on a weekly wage and just in on his transfer fee. And at the moment, I don't think he gets past Henderson, Fabinho and Thiago. I think that's the midfield three. I think someone, I keep seeing us linked with like Renato Sanchez and I think he, you know, he has improved a lot um, since his time at Swansea and Bayern Munich. But again, is he going to be happy sat on the bench and, 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 you know, watching Fabinho, Thiago, and, and Henderson play, I'm not too sure, but I think they need to they need to do something quick and fast um, because I I wouldn't want to be sat there on the 31st of August. I think that's when the transfer window ends or, or early September, ringing everybody up saying, "Is there any chance we can have this player?" Because that's when transfer fees do go up. Um, but something does need to happen. I think, um, as I was saying before, the issue is targets are going. Um, not so much in midfield. Um, all the players that we've been linked with um, seem to be sort of hanging about. But the forwards that we've been linked with are going off the ranks real fast. Um, as you guys know, I'm a big fan of um, Dusan Vlajevic. I think that he would be a very nice um, 
I hate the term plan B, but he'd be a very nice sort of different forward to what we've got, you know, big, powerful guy. He's still mobile. He's not, you know, he's not just young Andy Carroll again. Um, But yeah, I think, I think he'd be useful to come in. But again, it depends. The type of forward that comes in depends entirely on what system we're going to play. Because if we're playing the 4-3-3, Vlaivich doesn't work. But if we move to a 4-2-3-1, as we might, apparently, it'd work really well. So, Trying to pick the forwards that come in is going to be difficult. I like, I've heard us tentatively linked with Lautaro Martinez, which I mean, Jesus, I would love that. Oh my God, I would love Lautaro Martinez to come to Liverpool. But uh, like, I've heard reports that his asking price is like 70 million quid, which just rules him out straight away. That is just not going to happen. Um, but yeah, I think if business is to be done, it needs to be done soonish. Like, I understand there's a while left in the transfer window, um, but you don't, as James said, you don't want to be that team on the 31st of August just ringing around begging players. It's just, it's it's not a good look for how the club will be run and also you end up just overpaying, which is something that Liverpool really don't want to do. Yeah, I think I guess it's the balance of the right player, the fee, the timing, all of these things uh, come into it obviously last season I don't think Thiago and J- or Jota had been done by the first game of the season but Thiago definitely played in the, in the second game against Chelsea didn't he so it's still there's obviously still a few weeks left so we'll have to keep our fingers crossed that something comes out of the woodwork soon um, before we go we've got a few kind of miscellaneous points that I think would be w- worth talking about obviously there's a few friendlies left ahead of the first game against Norwich at Bologna tomorrow and then a couple of games um, against Bilbao and also soon to come at Anfield. What do we would we like to see from those, particularly in the forward positions? We've talked a little bit about Firmino, but what do we think his role is going to look like this year? Do we think it's going to be a bit more reduced, even more so than it was last year, given that we've seen this, what we've talked about in this podcast on more than one occasion, how he's showing some kind of steady decline in, in his output? Do we think these friendlies we've got here would be more of an opportunity, for example, to trial more of Ox at a false nine, as we've seen a little bit, or maybe Jota in in a more central role? And the second part of that question, is that going to impact what we see from Bobby Firmino um, in the next next 12 months? Uh, Yeah, I think the most interesting look will probably be the Bologna one. Uh, tomorrow, because it's it's the two 30-minute halves again, I think, isn't it? Um, So... That's going to be interesting because it's going to be two completely te- different teams playing in those two those two halves. Um, but it's it's it goes back to Max's point on the on the transfer targets is what formation are we looking to play? Because if we're playing four three three, then I think he probably plays in that front. I think he does get in as as the number nine, um, just because the way Jurgen likes him to press and he likes him being the focal point. Um, yeah. But then, if we're playing four-two-three-one, I, I guess it just depends. You know, when you're bringing Jota in, but it's then Jota going to play as the number nine, and Firmino perhaps playing as that, as you know, the link up from the midfield. Um, I think this is it's just a, a, where we are with Firmino's um, career at the moment for Liverpool. I, th- I think there's nobody else. We're not questioning where's where's Mane going to play, or where's Salah going to play, or where's Fabinho, where's Thiago going to play. Because we know the qualities and we know that they can perform at the highest level, but season on season, we're seeing Bobby's goals and assists decline and decline. And 
I think now we're, we're, we're also we're almost trying to kid ourselves that, oh yeah, we're trying to find places for him instead of him saying, right, this is my position and this is where I'm going to play. And I think that's never a good sign at a big club. Yeah. Um, it does depend on how we set up tactically. I, I still think Bobby has a lot to offer. Um, he's still really creative, still really good on the ball. But as James says, his productivity has year on year gone down. And that, that's, that's for me why signing a midfielder is a thing that needs to be done. But the first thing that needs to be done is a forward. Because when last year we still felt that Bobby was like, you know, able to be at that top, top level, having, a, having that four, Bobby, Mane, Salah, Jota, great. But it doesn't look as good when Bobby isn't at the level that he was a couple of years ago. Because right now, I would say Mane, Salah and Jota are certainly our best three forwards. I, I would say that's um, that's irrefutable. Whether they work in the same system together is questionable because Jota is just not as good in the middle as he is off the left. He just isn't. And he doesn't have the same pressing intensity that um, that Bobby does, as we saw to our detriment against Real Madrid. Um so I think whoever whoever comes in is going to be very hard to replace Bobby. I, I think after Bobby leaves, I think the system will change. I don't think he's going to get a new contract. I would actually be quite annoyed if he did. Um, uh, and I think you'll see a switch to a four-two-three-one or something that has a more traditional nine when he leaves. Because I can't think of a player who fits the sort of Firmino role um, to the same extent that he does. And there are players who drop deep, yes, who, you know, play in that sort of false 9-10 kind of area, like, you know, Paolo Dybala, Antoine Griezmann, they all do that. But they don't have the same work rate necessarily as he does. Griezmann works hard, but he would be stupid expensive anyway. He's like that as a non-starter. Um, and in that role, I just don't see who comes in to replace him. So I think going forward with Bobby, I think he's a great option to have around this year. I've still no issues in him playing for us and starting, but I think his departure has got to be planned for. And if we saw a forward coming this summer who could ideally take his place in the starting 11, I would be very happy with that. Yeah, he's definitely, I think, had his, his best years are definitely behind him, it's safe to say. So it'll be a sad day when he does leave because he's contributed enormously to, to what we've done in the last few years, but I tend to agree with what you guys are saying there. Before we go, that we've got some VAR changes for 2021-22, which I'm sure everyone is thrilled about. So I'll just outline what they are and what and what we think of them. First off, let's talk about the penalties. They are changing the way that they judge penalties and then looking for more than just contact now. Um, they believe that they were too forensic last season in awarding penalty kicks. And they're in their own words, they're looking for consequences of contact and the motivation of the attacking player according to Mike Riley so I guess that means they're going to be more strict on what penalties are given and which ones aren't we obviously saw the Euros VAR implemented in a much more sensible way than it was in the Premier League in my opinion so in terms of the penalty strategy for, for now is, is that something we're pleased with? I'm, I'm very happy to see it I think there's been a few times where especially you know, as a Liverpool fan in, in Liverpool games, there's been so many penalties that were given that shouldn't have been given you know, for the lack of contact. And sometimes we got penalties that should have been penalties that weren't. Um, 
I think you'll see uh, United struggle then if they're not getting the amount of penalties that they're going to be getting. I think Bruno's going to be, you know, just a, a posh penalty taker, you know. Um, but, but yeah, I, th- I think it's something we've all wanted to see and I think it's not so much, uh, like I said, I mentioned Liverpool games, but there was a few examples last season where it's just a 50-50 coming together. Well, there's very little contact and the player's just gone down and because of the ruling before, if there's any contact, you give a penalty. Um, so I think you'll see some tighter games next season and it might even favour the relegation fighting sides. You know, I think there was a couple of Fulham games where penalties were given when they shouldn't have been given. Um, so it, it probably works in their favour as well. I think um, I'm more excited about the offside, to be honest. Um, the fact they're going to give a little bit more leeway for offside and we're not going to have people with their toenail offside and bollocks like that. Um and yeah, I mean, like if that was the case, we get, like you know genuinely could have changed our season um, last year because I, I I maintain that not only losing Van Dijk and Thiago to injury, but I think losing out on the win against Everton like we did, I think that was a huge psychological blow um, to everyone involved with the club. Really. Um, the penalty thing, I'm very happy about the fact that it's now not just he got touched, she's gone down, it's a penalty. But the thing that worries me is that it's become more subjective. And the Euros was good in terms of the referee, but that was because we had European refs, people who had some idea of what the hell they were doing. Whereas a lot of the um, referees in the Premier League I don't think I have any idea what they're doing. I, the standard referee in the Premier League is hilariously bad. Um, and I think until that changes, we're going to see crap calls given every week. Because it's got, like you can, you can only help the referees so much. If they're incompetent, they're incompetent. What I really want to see change, and this will help with the diving epidemic, is players receiving fouls and receiving penalties when they're being fouled in such a way that doesn't mean you fall over. Like, Mo Salah constantly gets chokeholded by defenders, like, you know, arms around their neck, around their head and all that sort of thing, and nothing gets given. And then, you know, like, they'll just get away with it and get away with it for ages. And until that sort of fouling is punished and... Um, players diving in the box after, you know, getting breathed on by the nearest defender um, are given penalties. I think until you see that swap, I I think we're going to have issues with VAR constantly. Yeah, especially if that subjectivity point you mentioned there, because like Mike Riley says, they're now going to be taking into consideration the motivation of the attacker when they go down. So they're basically going to have to uh, read read the guy's mind to know whether he's di- whether he's chosen to dive or not. I'm not sure how that what that will really look like. Are they going to um, get like a medium in or something? <laughs> yeah, but it seems that way. But with with, with the Euros um, point as well, I think what worked really well at the Euros and it doesn't get mentioned enough is they have a lot of VAR dedicated referees. Whereas in this country, all of the referees, particularly last season, they would just your standard match day refs who would take on the role as a VAR person. Whereas at the Euros, they had, I think they had like six or seven people in the VAR room opposed to the two or three that we have over here in the Premier League. And they're just VAR refs. They're not match day 
officials. And this season, Lee Mason is um, no longer going to be a referee. He's going to be a, just a VA in the VAR hub. So it'll be interesting to see if that's the direction they go down to make these guys who are making these calls more comfortable <clears throat> with the technology and basically the rules, because they've all had to learn new rules, let's be honest, because the technologies came in and it's not really taken into account the traditional rules of the game that have stood for however many decades. Um, let's just mention the offsides quickly, like Max, you alluded to there. They're going to bring in thicker lines, is, is I think what, what the call is, a bit like what they did in the Netherlands last year. And the linesmen, they're not, they can now put their flag up for really obvious offsides rather than we had the situation quite a few times when the very blatant offside was just, you know, it was a bit of a farce, wasn't it, with the linesmen just allowing it to go through. I think last year, 20 goals would were ruled out, but this year will no longer be ruled out, which when you think about it, that could have such massive implications, could have had massive implications for player seasons. That Jordan Henderson goal in the derby that you mentioned there, Max, would, would now stand if it was scored next week, as would Mo Salah's goal against Brighton at the Amex, which would have made it 2-0 in the game that went on to finish 1-1, would now stand, which it wouldn't have done last season. So they're definitely trying to tweak it, but I guess, James, it's not... It still leaves a bit, a bit of a bitter taste in our mouths that we've dropped, you know, points in those two fixtures, which uh, could have made all the difference at the time. Yeah, it does. And it, it always always annoys you how they do it the season after when you need it the most. Um, but yeah, imagine if we were sat here now, you know, and we were talking about being in the Europa League next season because we finished five points outside the Champions League, where if those two goals had stood, you'd been a, been a point inside uh, the top four. But that's got repercussions up at the top of the league and, and obviously down at the bottom. Um, I think the offside one is probably going to change the game the most more than than the uh, the penalty decisions. I think that's going to have the biggest impact because you are having players, you know, score a goal and then celebrate and then have it brought back because, as Max, you know, alluded to before, you know, the round pit was offside or the little toe was offside, and I think that was the biggest killer of the game because. You couldn't get excited because you, you thought, oh, God, you know, if a ball goes over the top and, you know, Salah was 50, you know, online with the defender, you couldn't celebrate properly because you thought this is just going to yeah. get brought back for offside. More so than the, than the penalty decisions because I don't think we got many last season anyway. So I don't know how that's going to affect us. Um, but yeah, the offside one is definitely going to change the game. And I think it's going to change uh, the flow of the game as well, especially with fans now back in stadiums from next season. Um it's a little bit easier to to you know to understand what's going on at home with the offsides because the commentator can say, "Oh, this looks tight. It's going to go to VAR." But when you're in the stadium, you've got no idea um, up until they say VAR check. So I think it'll help the fans a little bit more in stadiums as well. Yeah, I think the offside thing with um, uh, putting the flag up when a offside is blatantly obvious, I, I think it's huge. Like I, I remember the bit, the biggest one was. We were playing Wolves, and I think it was Connor Cody accidentally knee-brewed Patricio in the head at Molyneux. And, I do remember that. And, and I can't remember who was offside. It might have been Ox. Um, and he was like, you know, you could see he was two yards offside. It was blatant that he was off. And they allow play to continue, and Cody has absolutely gone through Rui Patricio. And I remember that we were all worried it was another Jimenez um, situation. And that was totally avoidable if the linesman had just shown common sense, put his flag up, because it was clearly offside. Yeah. Um, 
And I mean, like, obviously, it's not the linesman's fault that Rui Patricio got injured. It is, like, he was operating within the rules that he was being told to operate within. But you're leaving yourself open to situations like that if you don't put your flag up. Um, or you could, or um, you've got the issue of um, uh, players thinking that a player is offside and he's not. I think it was Newcastle versus Sheffield. I can't remember who it was, but I remember one team just stopped because they assumed a player was offside. Um, he went through, scored, and then um, and then turned out he was on. It's just, yeah, I think the way that it was set up was just really, really stupid. So hopefully this finishes that sort of controversy. Yeah, hopefully it's a bit more seamless this season because obviously, well, I think it's been here two years now, has it? VAR in, in the Premier League, and it's fair to say it's been a bit of a, a bit of a shambles as everything that is implemented by <laughs> the footballing authorities is. But um, James Max will be back next week, and we'll have a massive preview for the season ahead. So rest up and get ready for then. Will do. I think. Uh... <laughs> I think I'll get me sleeping now just because I don't think I'll sleep next weekend because, they, you know, it's first game Arsenal-Brighton. I think it's uh, hopefully that gets us off to a cracker. Yeah, easy. Looking forward to the new season. Hopefully get a couple new signings in so we can all shut up about transfers and uh, move on with it. Looking forward to speaking to you guys about it. Fingers crossed. And you can keep up with all of our Anfield Central content online at anfieldcentral.co.uk and on our Twitter at Anfield underscore Central. But until then, goodbye.